You are listening to an Unlocked New Models episode. Less than half of our interviews, discussions, audio dramas, or monologues are ever made public. To access all of our content, or to join the discussions in our Discord server, visit patreon.com slash newmodels, or newmodels.substack.com. For this episode, recorded amid February's fall fashion run, we set out to speak about the contemporary terms of style. To help us think through this, we reached out to Olivia Kahn-Sperling, a New York-based writer in her mid-20s who, in addition to being an assistant editor and frequent contributor to the Paris Review, is also the author of a highly evocative work of contemporary fanfic starring Kendall Jenner and Lil Peep, titled Island Time. The book was published last summer by Expat Press and seems to encapsulate a certain ambient style that's felt ascendant for at least the past year or so. Olivia's writing can also be found in cultural publications such as Interview, Praxis, Heavy Traffic, and Cabinet. What follows is, on one level, a conversation about style. But maybe the real takeaway from this episode is a new media paradigm that is now becoming visible as Gen Z's media ecosystem matures and starts to integrate more directly with longer standing forms. If you listen to the subtext of this episode, you'll hear us all come to this realization in real time. At first, there's Julian and I repeatedly asking our guests to tease out the meaning of certain signs, to map out the trends to which she is local, to talk about the motivations of designers in her scene, And to be fair, our impulse can probably be likened to the aims of many late 2010s and early 2020 think pieces, and ultimately the job of any good piece of journalism, which is, as Martin Gurry put it, to translate the flux of reality into a coherent story, or as it appeared to many millennials, to take the smoldering pile of signs that were turned to rubble with the collapse of legacy media during the 2010s and try to build some kind of scaffolding capable of raising us out of doom scrolling log level. But we're no longer in wild web two meme magic time or COVID state of exception time. In 2022, the most downloaded apps in the Apple store were not Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, but TikTok, Be Real, and Gas App three social apps that barely integrate, if at all, with Web2 social media, let alone legacy media structures. The conditions are different in 2023, as are the affordances and hazards of being online. When prepping for this episode, we thought it would be interesting to ask Olivia some of the same questions that the week prior we had posed to Dis's Lauren Boyle. Dis being a project that emerged in the late aughts as exemplary of the post-digital millennial mindset. But in our conversation with Olivia, many of our prompts fell flat. Questions regarding subculture and authenticity, the cultural analysis of trends, sincerity appropriation, tribal affiliation, virality, meaning. These worked as a roadmap for speaking with Lauren, but were instead met with hesitancy. And even ultimately Olivia's merciful declaration of something to the effect of, I'm not sure, but the fact that I have zero opinion in response to your questions may be indicative of us approaching all of this from completely different paradigms. And it was at this point in our recording that I think we all mutually recognized that the conversation we really needed to have was about media, not style. A divergence in media systems so fundamental that it seemed no cultural consensus, let alone dialogue, could be established until these terms were reconciled. In our conversation with Olivia, she points to how signs are more valuable for their capacity to be newly encoded or excessively encoded rather than for their historically assigned meaning and how she is more interested in what X connects her to than what X means. X for her is a node, an orientation point, not content to be unpacked and explained. Julian and I wondered if this tracks for younger people in general. It would seem that there's a similar fluidity to identity among that age cohort, not just in terms of gender, but moreover, personae, the ability to shapeshift or to hold multiple identities simultaneously, or as if the playing field of cultural exchange is increasingly happening on the level of the code base rather than just the content. We hear from Olivia in this conversation that content feels cheap, and indeed it does, as if it's all just bait or filler, a mere surface effect to the programming language that organizes culture. 
we see in last week's Prada show a return to, quote, quote, clothes as clothes, to borrow Schumann Bassar's always razor-sharp real-time reporting, a fading away of memes. If there was a takeaway from this conversation, perhaps it's that the real truth is to be found, not by asking what a certain subsector of fashion means, but what underlying code would enable such fashion to make sense, or even in the first place come to be. Running a podcast is something like being in the driver's seat while a person you respect and think is cool sits shotgun. Sometimes the road is clear, the weather perfect and the discussion easy. Other times, sudden detours need to be made and directions improvised. If you are actually driving and you hit some complicated traffic, you might turn to your passenger and say, oh, sorry, hold that thought. I need to focus on the road for a second. But while podcasting, such an admission feels like driving your vehicle off the cliff. So instead, you double task, keeping the conversation going the best you can while concurrently figuring out an alternate route. Usually, this is doable. In the best cases, your guest is even inspired by the diversion. But once in a while, you find yourself on a road you don't recognize, losing daylight, and it's starting to rain. This podcast felt something like the latter example. And this preamble is the result of having gotten home and looked at the map and being like, oh, that's actually where we were. In any case, thank you, Olivia, for riding with us for the journey. And to you all for listening. We hope you enjoy it. The version of this podcast that Olivia experienced was a lot more awkward than what you're about to hear. It has been edited for brevity. I'm Little Internet, joined by my co-host Carly Busta. Our guest is Olivia Con sperling Let's get into it. Olivia, thank you for making the time to speak with us and welcome to New Models. Thank you. Yes, I'm so excited to be here. Cool. And you're calling us now from New York. I feel like I can hear New York immediately yes, in the background. construction. There's actually like a homophobic hate crime across the street where someone's lit a gay pride flag on fire. So now they're rebuilding a very proud gay establishment on Prince Street in Soho, the little prince. I guess there was a flag hanging and then someone lit it on fire and the entire like front of the building caught on fire. Like, two oh, nights wow. Ago. Oh, my God. Yeah. yeah, that's literal cultural war. OK, yeah. that's really a hate crime. Yeah. Official. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Fashion uh, week. <laughs> fashion week. Um, relatedly or not. Um, fashion week. <laughs> fashion week. Yeah, yeah, maybe more like it. Um, well, what I thought we could do to sort of calibrate people to the Olivia Con Sperling universe, I wondered if you'd be down to read an excerpt from this amazing work of fanfic. Yeah, totally. I chose something. I think I'm just going to read from the very beginning. It's almost like a prologue to the book. On one level, it's just a romance fanfic of Kendall Jenner and Lil Peep, but it's also about projecting yourself into avatars or characters and what it means to cast other images in writing in the same way that you would cast actors in a movie. It's also inspired by programming structures and algorithms, and it's a novel that's almost shaped like a virtual world game that's kind of haunted by other forms of media like music video or pop music or things like that. But also it's just a magazine beach read. Okay, yes, let's see. One morning, Kendall Jenner wakes up. We zoom in on beautiful almond eyes opening. They are animated by a mysterious twinkle. Hmm, I wonder what I should do today, she says with a yawn, petting a small black cat with curious white markings that almost make the shape of a question mark. Good morning, Midnight, she says. Midnight squirms over a gleaming grid of sunlight projected across a big white bed. Kendall has long black hair that falls to her waist in a tumbling and glimmering waterfall. Kendall sighs. We follow her into a small modern apartment. A breeze enters through sliding glass doors that open onto a crescent-shaped balcony. In addition to a kitchen corner, there's a square gray rug and a couch and a door going outside. Light comes in through a skylight. Kendall smiles dreamily, stretching her sleek tan limbs as she presses the button on the coffee grinder. Doesn't Kendall Jenner live in a beautiful mansion? Where are her friends, family, and business partners? Where is the wall with a portal-like oval that flushes pink and blue, designed by James Turrell? Her cars. She's a car girl. Hmm... As she settles on the couch with her café au lait, she drags a finger through the cup and brings it to her lips. Midnight laps at her bowl, which is filled with fresh, off-white cream, the only food she eats. A clock ticks, 
Clouds run over the sun and shadows move quickly through the apartment, like in a nature documentary when there is time lapse of animals moving through the desert. As shades of gray pattern over the simple surfaces of the scene, different objects are briefly illuminated. A designer handbag, a spiral bound notebook, and something under the couch we can't quite see. Then, a tinkling melody. Beveled black music notes dance on the breeze, and through the glass door we perceive a multicolored shape. Ribbon-like, it curves and then flattens, twisting and floating, in the wind and through the window. The jingle intensifies, then stops. The notes hang in the air, then pop like bubbles. Midnight's collar seems to have a tinkling silver bell on it. She has pounced on the paper and pinned it to the floor. Kendall looks up. Midnight? What's that? It is a map of the island in bright colors, a jumble of points of interest emerging almost three-dimensionally from the lightly crumpled paper. Areas of the island, historic coast point, a nest of miniature colonial houses, next to the skyscrapers of downtown city, adjacent to a new development by the water, Sunset Edge. At the heart of the island, verdant pine forests surround a mysterious turquoise lake. Several locations pulse and glow. Among them, the Corporate Cafe, page 11, 75. One Financial Plaza, page 9, 73. The Wicked Whaler's Bar, 17, 51, 121. The Cemetery, 69. The Beach, 15, 67. Lost John Labs, 39.91. Kendall steps out onto the crescent-shaped balcony and is lost in thought for a while. We see Sunset Edge, pleasant and brand new, but also strangely empty, like an ancient ruin. The blue ocean begins at the end of the street. Sand blown from the beach has collected in pools on the even, equally sand-colored squares of sidewalk. Hmm, Kendall murmurs, tapping her fingers against the railing. An asterisk spins in her eye. She makes up her mind and then selects her favorite outfit, the one she wears to go unnoticed. She folds the map one, two, three times and into her designer handbag. Then she bounces down the stairs and shuts the door behind her. We know it's Kendall, but in real life, would we? The real Kendall's actual live face is too unmarked and clean. Every beautiful girl looks like Kendall, and Kendall looks like no one at all. Eyes glance, move on, turn back, one moment, keep going. She kind of looks like but a movement of light, then again, not really. Kendall is a ghost girl, so to speak, and this is what allows her to slip in and out of the shadows. And that is exactly what happens now, as she treads lightly down the street, heading away from the beach and deeper into the island. Palm trees wave in the breeze. Kendall wears a skin-tight black spandex shorts and a matching spaghetti strap sports bra. She stops to frown at three electric scooters perched at a jaunty angle on the sidewalk. They're the kids' T-shaped kind, operated by kicking and gliding, except motorized. They have lights on them that glow and pulse, even in daytime, changing from red to magenta to green to yellow, like a traffic signal for another universe. One day they weren't there, and then they were. Weird. The sidewalk seems to stretch out into the distance forever. One, two, three different landscapes pass by. Her footsteps take her to one financial plaza. We find ourselves in a clearing among skyscrapers patterned with rectangular windows that reflect each other indefinitely. In the center, the empty space, is a marble splashy circular fountain with arcing jets of water. There's all these glimmering gold coins hovering in the misty air around the fountain. Each one rotates around its interior axis, suspensefully. Kendall blinks and walks away. Then she walks back, plucks one from the air, and puts it in her handbag. She twirls around in a circle, gazing up, affixed to a building, a shiny gold plaque, Textron Tower. Kendall approaches and runs her slender fingers over the metallic words. Then, all of a sudden, she sees a door. It seems to glow mysteriously. She goes in. <laughs> Thank you. I, I could listen myself, to the whole book. I know, I listened to the whole book, exactly. It reminds me of a certain kind of affect that Bernadette Corporation achieved in their book, Ein Pino Grigio Bitta, where yeah. I guess where I want to pivot here is it feels like it's writing that leans into style. But Olivia is also describing what would be like a TikTok video or something where there yeah. are notes that are made visible and then pop like bubbles. It's literature describing a sort of, animated video format. 
That's true. And it should be noted that you've published one version of this on your HTML site where there is a level of interactivity and words like handbag or emphasize. Well, they're written almost like the convention of a film script, which in in its way, like sort of codifies objects. That's true. Uh, So I guess to bring that excerpt, to bring that into the realm of fashion and style, can you speak about how style functions in your book? How do you think about style and fashion? How do you use those terms? Yeah, I'm so glad you use style as a keyword because that is my main interest in all different forms of media because you have style and literature and cinema, but then also your lifestyle, right? How you dress yourself, how you walk down the street. I mean, fashion is like a particular industry that I have varying degrees of interest in, but style is something that's like alive. In this book in particular, I was specifically inspired by film scripts, but also by text-based role-playing games where you'll capitalize certain objects and then those objects are playable or mean something or they're a clue or they're a hyperlink, right? In the same way that in a graphics-based game, an object that you see on the sidewalk might be like glowing and that means that you should collect it. And I'm interested in capitalization, making the word into something in excess of its dictionary definition. And I think that's, to tie this back to what you asked about style, the clothes that are most interesting to me aren't really meant to be read. You see a lot of like really corny collections, you know, Alessandro Michele at Gucci, a genius, but like kind of just doing this weird exercise of like creating these walking mishmashes of signifiers of different periods of fashion, but then also like abortion rights or whatever, or like a a Donna Haraway collection. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, the Foucault collection and Balenciaga. I mean, Demna, I think, is actually like an amazing designer, but I think the reason it's gotten so corny is because he'll like do these shows that almost beg to have an op-ed written about them. The clothes themselves are actually, I think, really beautiful and interesting, but I think something about the media landscape has like flattened so much of everything. Yeah. You know, we just saw in New York Fashion Week, these mischief boots become, I mean, hyper objects, the wrong word, but they became the main- People just call it clickbait clothing. Clickbait clothing, right. Like it has to have this extra layer in order to transport itself through media. Although it might just reflect how much everything has been reduced to attention being the most valuable and necessary metric Mm. where- you're always going to win if you max out attention. And so everything just optimizes for attention. Yeah, I mean, I think the attention economy isn't going away, but it's like, how is the attention generated? I mean, that's the question. Like, And I think you even see that with like Logomania. Like I was reading these like very low IQ, but sort of very revealing Vogue articles about Logomania where they like ask experts why it's happening. And they're like, yeah, yeah, of course. It's because of people's attention is shorter. So it used to be like that designers like Gucci could develop a real quote, tri-dimensional language, which I thought was an amazing term, in order to express themselves. And then you would see that and you would know that it's Gucci because it looks like Gucci. But now everything just has to literally say Gucci in order for you to know it's expensive. And the mischief boot is an interesting example because like you literally see it, like it's fucking huge. Red is like the most eye-catching color. It's like popping out of the grid at you. At the same time, like, it's actually quite innovative and interesting. I haven't actually seen anyone wearing them in real life, but I would love to. And, like, I think most of my friends who are the best dressed kind of do look like walking hyperlinks, (laughs) pop-up ad, weird collages of, like, stuff they bought on Japanese eBay and, like, Chinese mistranslated words um, and sort of, like, rags that they have. Um, (laughs) Yeah, it's real metaverse fashion. (laughs) I just feel like fashion at this point becomes the sort of portal in between the digital space of memetics and the IRL world, just your identity in real life and your identity online. And I think the clothes are also engineered with both of those worlds in mind now. They're not designed only for your real life existence. I mean, I think that's the way fashion is supposed to function. But I think now that we have social media, we don't need fashion anymore. Like... When I started college, like that's a great you know example. You have to project who you are immediately. Um, now you don't have to do that anymore. Like you can dress because the way sort of subcultural clothing functions, right, is essentially as like a trail of hyperlinks, like your likes, like your band T-shirt. And now people just look up your handle and they know exactly 
who your mutuals are, what your scene is, who you're following. <laughs> I was kind of surprised when I moved to New York that I don't really know a lot of people that look like they put a lot of thought into what they're wearing. They all look kind of boring. And I think it's because they don't have to signal, really. It's all kind of built in. So, but you still have to dress yourself, right? And you still have to choose what you're putting on. So even if you're like choosing to not care, that's still some kind of signifier. Like, especially in a place like New York where there is going to be IRL interaction. You're going to see someone on the train platform at Dime Square or whatever. And there is like a really particular fashion ecosystem in New York. You know, it's almost like a form of couture. It's often handmade. It's not inaccessibly expensive, but it's not like fast fashion. I mean, 200, 300 bucks for a piece. And it really would feel out of place if you were to wear it in like regular suburbia, like there's a receptive audience in New York. So can you actually maybe animate what the more interesting edges of that aesthetic are that you're approximate to? I think, okay, yes. Great question. I mean, the one highly distinct, almost perfectly internally homogenous style that I see a lot and that I like a lot is this I would say like a cousin of like the Cafe Forgot handmade DIY knitwear cutesy, which is the Cafe Forgot version is kind of very like little girl with a klutz kit or maybe elementary school teacher, like bright colors, fun, cute, quirky, whimsical. I think there's another flavor of that associated with, I associate it with this fashion collective Lucky Jewel that also just opened a store downtown. And instead of these cute colors, it's a lot of handmade looking, but almost like cave girl aesthetic, <laughs> like lots of holes and like raw edged leathers and furs um, and neutral tones and almost weapon-like, talisman-like little silver objects as jewelry or like stuffed animals. To me, they look almost like kill, like you're hunting, like something that, that you just hunted in the wild in this little obviously East Asian anime, cute furry object related stuff. Yeah, I've been thinking about it as like a paleo girl way of dressing. It, some of the stuff looked like there's no sewing machine involved or it is actually highly tailored, but deconstructed in the specifically hunter-gatherer way. An interjection here about the clothing designer's lucky jewel. Olivia requested that we include their own description so she isn't speaking for them. Here it is. Lucky Jewel is an amorphous platform and collective currently existing as pop-up shopping installations and group shows. The items we feature come from a wide range of artists and makers who share a similar devotion to the sentimental power of objects. We're largely concerned with forming a community among local and non-local makers, using temporary space as an opportunity for experimentation, skill-sharing, networking and collaboration, and of course, shopping. Looking at their collection after recording this podcast, I did in fact recognize some legible archetype. It's in the fuzzy realm of Otto Linger and Charlotte Knowles, but has a Zoomer edge that I know from the scene around Trauma Bar und Kino here in Berlin. A sort of DIY, Unreal Engine, organic CGI feel with some fried meme mallcore, lossy lowly anime, and a sprinkle of ketamine. Ultimately, it's a particular but distributed subculture of the internet for a certain subset of young women born after 1997. And yeah, probably can't and shouldn't be named. It's like adjacent to Bushwick Raver culture, but it's obviously not. There's music stuff happening, but I wouldn't say that this is like a signifier in the same way that, let's say, punk dressing carries with it like five other sets of, like, you know what that person's doing in their day. I'm not sure that this is like a subculture in the same way. It's just like what people look like. Right. It doesn't entail other signifiers. Sorry. Right. Or it doesn't require some kind of particular lifestyle. But what are the edges of that world that it would be legible to? And I guess the question I'm also asking here, is it geographically bound or is it something that is also has like a digital local? And if so, how are those codes transported in the online space? So, okay, geographically, like, Yes, the collective came, I think, out of Chicago. So it did start as a highly local phenomenon. But really, like, from the outside, it's just how fashion works on the internet. I mean, like, the way I started becoming interested in clothes wasn't because I knew people that dressed a certain way. It was just, like, in college, somehow the algorithm brought me to, like, 
Central St. Martin's MFA collections, and I just started looking at them, and I had no idea really what I was seeing. I still don't know anything about that scene or whether they consider themselves a scene, like what that means, why all their clothes are so good and everyone else's are so bad. Like, I have no context, essentially. And in the same way, I think you see this on Depop, which I've used kind of since it started. There's girls all over America, all over the world, selling their wares in the exact same way. And they're completely, um, the way they style themselves, the way they modify their little silk slip dresses to say snarky things, like, <laughs> is all the same. But I'm not sure that people at their high schools, like, yeah, they probably are legible as that kind of Girl. So another question we always have is where is the media commons? You think, okay, there used to be this fire hose of information and that's no longer there. Like, is it TikTok? Is there a collective unconscious of style that's popping up, I guess, within generationally bound terms or like, where is fashion happening or where is style happening? Like it's not happening in generally speaking within the major sponsored fashion weeks. You could say a little bit like there's Luar or Luis de Javier or with Kalina Estrada or, you know, kind of is by in those spaces, but where really is it happening? Like, where is there that exchange? Right. I mean, like the question of fashion versus style becomes yeah. interesting there again, because I don't know where fashion is happening. I don't know what that would mean. Like, I, I guess like there's fashion shows. Those are cool, kind of weird, archaic gimmicks. Like they're awesome. Um, but I, I don't know <laughs> what it means for fashion to be happening there or not. I think where is styling happening? Like how are people styling themselves? Like, yeah, that's happening on TikTok, on your Instagram, right? And that's not even really primarily about clothes, though, right? right like, it's right. about camera angles and the quality of camera you're using. Um, and it might not even involve any pictures of yourself um, or any pictures of what you're wearing. Um, it might just be, like, the weird pictures of the gutter that you're posting on your grid. <laughs> right. Like, I'm kind of like an aging Zoomer and also, like, was very late to all of these platforms. But I remember seeing particularly over COVID, this like explosion of Instagram accounts that reminded me a lot of like the tumblers I used to go on in like 2013 with names that were just like, you know, Nintendo Princess 2001 right. that would just like follow all of these accounts. And clearly it wasn't like a social network. Like they weren't following people that they knew in real life, but they were just like constructing this like social cosmology of people who were styled similarly to them and who were posting content that was similar. And I honestly have no idea what the end goal of that is, but that's, I guess, the primary sphere in which style, as I see it, exists. But that's interesting because maybe it's like that's enough communication. I mean, think about it. When you go to like a music show, you wouldn't really talk very much because you're listening to music and it's super loud. You know, you don't go to Bergheim to have like a philosophical conversation. You oh, just... but that happens all the time. <laughs> it does. True, true. Oh. <laughs> but I mean, that's like not the main function of it, right? Um, this is what I wanted to ask yeah. like about Lucky Jewel, though, is like, is there a archetype behind Lucky Jewel? Is there a clear like fantasy you could describe like that has an origin that you can actually point at? Or do they just bubble up online from some collective unconscious? I don't know. I mean, this is also getting into territory where it's hard to talk. Like, I'm not one of these designers, like, and, and also I think like they understand how to sell their clothes themselves online in the same economy as like girls who are not real. I mean, they are actual fashion designers, but they can sell in the same way that just some random chick in her parents' bedroom in New Jersey is selling her clothes. And they understand that they can be direct to consumer in that way. Most of the clothes I buy, basically I buy them off Instagram from like designers that have 20,000 followers that I randomly found through clicking on tagged Instagram photos at some point when I was like, deep diving on Instagram. I mean, I wonder though if it's kind of how subcultures in the West are starting to operate maybe more like they would in the East where it ends up being less some like authentic lifestyle and more of a costume you'd end up putting on. I think about when it was in Tokyo 10 years ago or something, the Harajuku stores. And I wonder if it's just that model now becoming more popular in the West or being more present. I mean, I think, I don't know. This is interesting because I, I don't know whether the fact that I have zero thoughts about this is indicative of like <laughs> an almost paradigm. The idea of there being subcultures or not, like I actually just don't think is something that occurs to me as like a, a point of inquiry. Like like it's like an alien um, idea to me, I guess. Um, 
but yet they're still yeah. micro style groups. Yeah. Like real tree with guys. Yeah, but I don't think so. I actually think like it's the opposite. Like uh-huh. there isn't. Like there's this article that came out about like New York downtown, like reactionaries or whatever, and it was like yeah, they're all wearing real tree and they're like hunters and like being a hunter is conservative. But like that's just not fucking true. <laughs> like people wear real tree who are like queer dance raver kids. Right. I, I guess what I'm saying is actually I don't think that they signify anything. And I think it's not even interesting to talk about it in that way, yeah, really. Yeah, yeah. Like real tree is like an amazing pattern made of photorealistic deer heads and branches interlocking to form like miniature clearings with little sparkles of light inside of it. And then like you can zoom out and it becomes this like insane, like if you look at the patterns, which you can do like online, it's beautiful. It's like an insane vision of nature, human technicity, fashion, hunting, technology, eating, (laughs) dressing, signification, asignification. I think like describing clothes in that way is much more today. Like to me, there's no other meaning to that pattern, I guess, other than its visual affordances. You could also say it has nothing to do with hunting. Realtree is an interesting instance of photorealistic printing on fabric. People use it as window curtains. It's like a method of image production. I had a real tree couch cover in uh, college <laughs> because he had a really shitty couch. And so I went on Cabela's and, and got a real tree couch cover. It's really the signature, like masterpiece of American textile design. <laughs> Could be. Yeah, yeah. It is our like dragon pattern silk of, <laughs> of America. Yeah. Also, I mean, camouflage is just incredibly interesting in itself. There's so many different kinds that have so many different purposes. I mean, there's entire streetwear brands built around camouflage in the mm-hmm. early Y2K era. Realtree being in vogue is not a new mm-hmm. phenomenon, you know? Yeah. It's just having another moment now. Right. Um, but I guess the main point we're digging around here, though, is that fashion is not so much a clear tribal signifier as it once was. Yeah, and I mean, I think, as you were saying, like Realtree and camo are like patterns par excellence or like fashion aesthetic par excellence because it's like about the constant evacuation and recycling of signifiers and like refilling them with meaning and now it's just happening much more quickly right like with camo it's like okay so it's used for soldiers but then also for like anti-vietnam war protesters and then on like spice girls pop stars and now it's on people who are into y2k aesthetics wanting to look like spice girls pop stars and maybe now we just have like all threads running at once and like that's what fashion like yeah everyone wants to be like oh so what does this mean what is this the surface effect of what does this symbolize and maybe like for one season, it does have like a concrete meaning. Maybe one designer, whatever, Marine Sayre decides like, yes, this is what this means and it's about climate change. But then the next season, literally the next season, it changes and changing temporality and changing signifiers is actually built into the industry itself. I don't think that's just a symptom of capitalism. That's like like such a deep part of human nature, mm-hmm. uh, like the desire for change, like changing seasons. I mean, maybe it's just that it's more about the story behind the signs themselves than some sort of tribal belonging. Because, I mean, if we're thinking about our geriatric understanding of how fashion signifiers (laughs) used to work, it was kind of signifying belonging to a larger group, right? Or even like resistance to a group. But maybe now most of that community building, just because so much of it happens online, mm-hmm. the fashion is more a fetish of the object itself. I'm, that's definitely how I like to think about clothes almost as a kind of like magic object or like when you think about, I'm not sure whether this is actually historically accurate, but pre-modern societies investing these both man-made and natural objects with like something that's beyond just like a word. I think the mischief boot is totally that, right? right? So it's a reference to what Astro Boy, like I don't even know what that is, but it's unnecessary to know what the shoes are referencing because they're literally just big red boots. But I'm interested in the actual use of these talismanic fashion items. I mean, a lot of these are pretty fragile pieces. And New York is like, your clothes take a beating in New York. And it's different than the kind of clothing that gains status with wear and like The showing, selvage denim era. Or the selvage denim era, right, right. You know, you get cred the longer you have it and the more distressed it looks through use. Um, and so I wonder about the actual wearing and they're almost like artwork. So do they feel like they're collecting their friend's work? Like what's the social in circulation of these objects? For me, certainly it's very much about like 
personal local economy with like people I know buying their stuff. That also exists when I buy things on Depop, mm. technically. Like I, I really do feel like I'm like buying from like a girl. I was thinking about this, like how precarious a lot of these looks are. As I said, like there's a lot of holes in them. It's not just Lucky Jewel, like a lot of like Anna Bolina did this show. I mean, that's like not really meant to be worn to a party, but like it all kind of looked like it was falling off of the model's bodies. Like I have a friend, Matthew Lindy, who's like a serious like fashion theorist guy. And he's always like, oh, like these clothes, like it was just falling apart. Like there's no tailoring. This is a mess, right? Which I think is true and fair. And like, yeah, like, like tailoring is cool and important, but we just don't live in that world anymore where you uh-huh. can buy that affordably. And so when you buy stuff from China or from Xi'an, from AliExpress, like people complain in what I think is really like a boomer way of like, oh, everyone looks so terrible because the clothes don't actually fit them because they bought them online. And it's like, yeah, that's maybe true. But like, to me, that's like saying like, oh my God, these kids dressing in like punk clothing, like why are they so dirty? You know, like it doesn't occur to them that it could be a feature, not a bug. Like I kind of like this aesthetic where you can tell like, oh yeah, I've also seen that weird hoodie on AliExpress and it did look completely different in the photo and like now you're wearing it on the street and it's clearly meant for like a Chinese girl like three sizes smaller than you and it's also falling (laughs) apart. It's like this hyper object where I can see the sort of universe of images like I can see the cloud of the mood board that's around it. I love that it's like you have like an AR layer and it comes up in your mind. Yeah. You don't think that that person got scammed. You're like oh dope that guy's mood board is resonating with mine. So there's like an affection towards it. It makes me think also like there's so much that if you actually recognize where something is from, it actually suggests you both frequent a similar space that actually the chances of two people coming across the same item aren't that common now, you know, compared to in the past. It's like community as media. It's kind of like knowing a rare meme or something or the way like internet slang emerges. That's interesting too. We were talking with the sociologist Kevin Munger about how in a time when there's all this language prediction and language generation that there's extra value to using language the wrong way with a group of friends where there's like a productive incoherence or fuzziness. And maybe the same is true of clothes where it's kind of basic to like wear the tailored jacket that like looks conventionally good and looks expensive or something, but that's flat. That doesn't really have any surplus value. But if you wear the hoodie that doesn't fit, it's just like really rich exchange. Yes, I mean, that's definitely true. And I think that exists in fashion and exists in every sphere of culture always. Okay, this is me just thinking out loud, but there's another interesting twist that you could put in that. A lot of Zoomer cultures really boils down to like scammer culture. Like, and you can see this in a lot of, yeah, like reselling, like being your own entrepreneur, but then basically also scamming people and scamming other girls your age who are going to buy your stupid thing that, totally you know is falling apart or that like you dug out of your mom's attic and so I mean that's a different kind of like not mistranslation of signals but intentional that that's like a whole different symbolic economy literally um and like anti-community right there's like so many chicks on Instagram hawking like weird diet foods or literal Ponzi schemes, actually. And obviously we all know about looting. Like we all know about how society has broken down and how Zoomers behave as like these maverick cowboy (laughs) agents of culture and commerce. And I think like it's interesting to think about that with clothes. That's where you see like a kind of material breakdown is when like you get your pair of cool chainmail print socks and you're like, oh, funny, this is just like a sticker. <laughs> like this, is, this chainmail pattern is just like this this stupid sticker that got a, someone put on a pair of Hanes socks that like I couldn't see that in the grainy image. And now I have this basically piece of trash. Wait, so <laughs> as somebody who's like has had Depop, I open it sheepishly and I like search the brands that I know, which is so stupid. I know you have to actually build a network and that's actually the way to do it and find stores you like and then find the stores they follow or whatever. But <laughs> like, how do you do quality control or is that just part of the experience? And like, this is like such an exennial question, but since you're here, I'm going to tap your knowledge base. Like, how do you deal with sizing? How do you deal with quality control? Like, you just sort of have like a price limit where you're willing to risk it and then make the best of whatever comes? Like, how do you emotionally, psychologically (laughs) orient to that risk factor? Yeah, I mean, you have to become really 
good at like reading carousels of six images <laughs> and like noting what's missing from them because after a while you can see like the kinds of lighting that will like produce certain effects of color or whether they like didn't show the back of it or like if it looks really good on it's always that the girl is pinching the dress in the back <gasps> to her body and sticking her boobs out I mean that's like a whole nother level of this economy is like all of the images look like cam girl shots but like these girls are just selling to other girls their own age so that's another interesting articulation of whatever the male gaze has now become but I think right like the beautiful thing is okay yeah there are scams and people like to complain about that and some people won't ever ship you their thing but what's beautiful about it is like you actually do realize how much society does function or maybe not society but like bonds of like interpersonal trust there's absolutely no reason why this girl should send you anything once you buy it like actually nothing will happen to her but nine times out of, out of ten she actually will and actually will be what it looks like and realizing that those kind of trust networks actually do still work even if say you don't trust your doctor or the government <laughs> you're just like trusting like other redditors for your information and other random 14 year olds for your clothes it does it does work like wow utopia through depop i never thought about that <laughs> but actually like the bonding factor is stronger than the like scam factor I, of yeah, course, but also just look but, at a highway how so but everyone is driving the speeding hunk of steel in between two lines oh, and yeah. you have to trust all of them to not just say YOLO and swing the wheel to the left. But that's mutually assured destruction. Whereas yeah. like selling somebody a pair of like fake socks on Depop, nothing's going to happen to you. Can't your account get taken away or a bad rating or something? Maybe. I'm a very good Depop seller. I, I, I always ship everything. But one time I just didn't and nothing happened. Mm. And she didn't even ever complain. <laughs> so no, like you don't, I mean, you can leave someone a bad rating, right? I guess that's like the one form of content community control that exists, but it's pretty wild west out there. I have a question that I keep thinking of over the course of this conversation and us being uh, boomers try <laughs> trying to understand magnets, fashion, how does it work? Um, but I mean, I think about the recent trend of like anti-trend consulting, trend consulting, where like trend consultants are like the next trend, no more trend consulting. And everybody is, there seems to be this like real resistance to forecasting, to categorization, to coring things. And I wonder if the macro trend actually is trying to escape categorization, forecasting, these things that are able to be cord, so to speak, and therefore, of course, like marketed and packaged. I think like my generation or maybe not just my generation, but people now in general are much more suspicious of the media and what they read online, right? And instinctively want nothing to do with that. And you can see how much how much things are basically memed into existence. Hopefully, like there's a resistance growing to like wanting to read a web article about like what the mischief boots mean or whatever. I'm not sure that we really need that or even if they do mean something or can say something, it's so empty and um, clearly serving not your interests mm -hmm. or really your intellectual growth or sense of aesthetic appreciation. Um, I don't know why like New York Times readers want to read about this fake phenomenon that was <laughs> created that has nothing to do with them to buy the boot. Like, you, you know what I mean? It's just entertainment, right? It's a form of entertainment reading these little think pieces and op-eds. And like, I like reading certain kinds of fashion writing. There's this podcast, Nymphet Alumni, that's like an amazing fashion podcast. But what they're doing is basically... I think like fiction, like they're creating internally, logically coherent analyses of trends and like drawing borders around them and describing the type of girl who wears this. And I think as with all cultural criticism, though, it's basically world building fiction. Um, and like that's the level it should be appreciated on, I think, rather than as hardcore analysis that has like any real truth value, like truth being something that like you should act on or care about. I listen to Nymphen alumni too sometimes and I appreciate that they're doing what they do. And as somebody who oftentimes live through the cycle that they're talking about, I'm always like, but that's so wrong. That That's totally not how it was. And then I have to just be like, 
I mean, your framing is perfect. It's a kind of fanfic in a way. Yes. And, and it's really beautiful in that sense because as you say, it's kind of like criticism for the post-truth world or something. But apropos to that, I actually wanted to ask you about dark academia and this preppy thing that they constantly come back to and the Donna Tartt universe and Brad Easton Ellis and Whit Stillman. What are you going to say? I was going to ask one question related. You ask a question, then we can move to that. Yeah. Okay. Um, Do you think part of the resistance to that kind of writing is calibration or being more tuned to, say, a, a logic where they know cultural criticism and analysis can only be a gross generalization and there's no data to actually mm. back it up. And for that reason, it's kind of like bullshit from the beginning. Do you think it's actually that part of it? I mean, yeah, I think like on a sort of like phenomenological level, consumers know that like the way that they're consuming is through image collage. You don't need a media theorist to tell you that because you're on Pinterest, you're on Tumblr, you're on Instagram under your weird fake 2001 username that you know has nothing to do with 2001. I think Zoomers are hyper aware of what they're doing as a historical aesthetic collage. And right, as you say, it has to do with the medium and the way that you consume images without any links. Actually, like Bernadette Corporation, this like image is burned into my mind, something that I saw on Tumblr in like, 2012, when I would have been like, uh, like 13. Um, I think I just misaged myself, but like, and it said, it was like an image and it was like some fashion thing that said Bernadette Corporation at the bottom. And I was like, wow, like, I have no idea what that is. Like, I I remember a whole fantasy world about corporations and like a woman named Bernadette appearing (laughs) immediately in my mind. And I reblogged it and like, I would later find out what it actually was, but that was no boundary to me, like consuming that media and reappropriating it and it shaping me in some way. And I think everyone who is like online in that way experiences images and like their own relationship to constructing how they look in a similar way. Uh, Is there ever a time when it does feel necessary to return to some kind of factual basis? Like, is there a separate place for that? I'm just curious if in the spectrum of media consumption, if there is a place for that or if it just feels irrelevant. I mean, like, yeah, definitely. And I don't know, like politics, right? Like Mm -hmm. health, but in the realm of aesthetics and especially fashion, hewing to these, like understanding the references that you're wearing I don't even know why you... Right, it comes down to this Gen X idea of authenticity Mm. that you're like a poser if you're not reading yourself Uh correctly Mm -hmm. or what you're projecting. And this again ties back to like having Instagram as the floating backdrop with which you walk into a bar. Like I can feel confident that people will be able to read me correctly because Instagram, like I literally consider it a project of my life, like representing myself and aestheticizing it. And like, I know exactly what I'm doing there. And if people need more context, they can find it very easily. So what I wear, whether I look like from day to day, sometimes like a stupid 16 year old e-girl, age inappropriately dressed in like dumb pink Y2K pom-poms or whether like (laughs) I'm wearing a sort of like tailored suit jacket. It doesn't have to be consistent. It doesn't really matter to me to present with a degree of accuracy in the same way. Right, right. I mean, you can also imagine authenticity making sense in the 90s. Like authenticity was a way of maintaining a scarcity economy around Mm. subcultural information, right? People were stores of information and they would only share it with other people who are authentically part right. of that like subculture, you think of right? George's topi, like, right, because you couldn't yeah. just access all the information. Right. You couldn't just find everything out that you wanted to. So the authenticity, I think, maybe emerged from the scarcity of information mm-hmm. in a way of gatekeeping or controlling it. But yeah. I think that's why that phenomenon existed, or at least part of it was that economy of scarcity around the subcultural right. information. And now there's no purpose for that. So why not right. be post-authenticity? Like, the deployment of science isn't linear, so it doesn't, right. there's not even the mechanism to control it anymore anyway. Well, there, but people are still like invested in authenticity to a certain level, even when everything they're doing is counter to that logic. Like I thought the vibe shift discourse was just so embarrassing, like for everyone on every level, because it was like, okay, yes, you have this like guy kind of misunderstanding everything that's going on. But then the fact that like people who considered themselves the originators of this term found it necessary to make themselves legible and to say, oh, actually, like, I wrote a substack about that on this date, (laughs) and this is what it really means, like, is completely counter to the way the entire 
really amazing form of like image circulation and language and discourse that like that community had created, which was like completely illegible and untied from sources functions. It, it shouldn't matter. And you definitely shouldn't care what it says about this word in the New York Times or wherever. Yeah. And I think this is maybe a weird other strain that I don't know how to incorporate into what we've been saying. But in terms of ripoffs, like in a negative sense, like designers, people I know, like their stuff blew up and when they were still in college. And then like literally within a year, you see it in Forever 21. That's a whole different type of acceleration of meme logic that definitely has like financial effects for the original content creators. And that and it wasn't always that way. It's really interesting, actually. I remember when it was, I, I remember when like fuck Jerry or Fat Jew got so big because they were just like, you know what? Like there's no ownership of memes. Mm-hmm. We're just going to quote unquote steal good memes and repost them without attribution mm-hmm. because that's the way the internet works. And a lot of people at that time, that was not the way everyone understood it. And that was actually a shift that happened during the Instagram age. It was early on, right. but it was during that age. Yeah, so like it's, 2010, it's, 11, 12. Yeah, it's yeah. really interesting how that's yeah. just become... But yeah, I agree. It is a very... I mean, I learned this from C-Punk. It's cringe to try to claim ownership. Yeah, well, maybe there's a link here to why... Zoomers or like Nymphet alumni, why there's this interest in this time when books were important and authenticity was important. And there is like a fascination with preppy culture, but it's also one that like, in my mind, when I hear their like fanfic of it, it's so different than my understanding of what preppy culture meant in the eighties and a kind of like passing for people who are upwardly mobile or moving from the country to the cities. And if they assumed this style, it was a kind of drag for like old money and it allowed them to be in different spaces. But they also thought it was perverted that they were like wearing homophobic garb, even though they were gay, you know, there was like a real, there's like a lot of really interesting stuff that was happening there. But that part of it sort of left out of the narrative. And yet there's just this like fascination with Donna Tartt and Whit Stillman and Brett Easton Ellis and blazers and skirts and like, can you reconcile this for me? Like what, is it just a bit of a reaction to the incoherence, to the scavenger core Bushwick? Like, what do you think makes it so interesting in the minds of like Zoomer culture or like this subsector of it? I think, I mean, okay, maybe there's some, that specifically that Nymphet alumni episode was very confusing to me as well. I don't think there's a lot of Zoomers who are very into Donna Tartt and Brett Easton Ellis <laughs> okay. or even know who those people are. Um, like, I think dark academia, I think it's about anime and Uh Japanese. And this is like a very interesting, I think, tracing of like culture and mistranslations and race and globalization. I think it's about, like, I don't even watch anime, but like I I have the image in my mind of like the little Japanese schoolgirls in those outfits. And it's like way more of like a perverted a sexy, um, thing. like, private school girl yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. Like, you don't see boys dressing right, like this. Right. Um, and now you see these girls walking around, yeah, with, like, huge over-the-ear headphones on and, like, little pleated skirts as if they're, like, the girl in the back of the classroom who's about to, like, <laughs> I don't know, <laughs> like, meet whatever, anim- I don't know what happens in anime, yeah. Right, like, like a lane-type um, fantasy or to, like, control everyone yeah. through the internet. Um, I mean, I remember that being a real archetype, though. Mm-hmm. Like, there was a certain the type. The anime schoolgirl type. Wait, just, which is separated, though. There's dark academia over here, and its lineage is more like anime, Japanese schoolgirl, Lolita fantasy. What I'm talking about is, in the aughts, a particular kind of pre-Web 2 extremely online girl who was often bookish and neotenous and very intelligent, but was like a hardcore troll on 4chan. And that, to me, was like the IRL origins of dark academia. Like, it's these girls who were very intelligent, sort of dressed kind of plain and scholarly Mm -hmm. and bookish, Mm -hmm. and were into really fucked up shit online. That makes sense. And that's like a real archetype. But that's so different than the, like, blue blood 80s preppy that then became this mass Abercrombie hyper-sexualized culture. Like, that, to me, those are divergent paths. I don't think prep and dark academia are, yeah, related at all. Yeah, wow. Okay, this is interesting. I think you are right on a certain level that, like, maybe in my mind, like, the chain of causality is slightly different in the way people dress 
as dark academia now, but it is quite noteworthy that like the image that you're trying to project isn't like Hollister, Abercrombie, mm-hmm. like, yeah, I'm a sexy surfer who's like out in the sun and I'm like doing stuff or I'm like playing polo. Like maybe the polo shirts, these like prep school activities then do, like you could be wearing a polo shirt definitely if you're in dark academia. But like, I think if there's an avatar that you're projecting, it's like shy girl who's on her computer, right. like inside anemic, right? right. Like frail and like not talking. Right, right, um, right. Very different than sorority sister dressed in Lily Pulitzer with a Tory Burch bag. Yeah. That's like total opposite. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So basically there's been a lot of mixing of codes, but the lesson here is that like everything's up for grabs and the best thing you can do is carve good fanfic out of it and try to put together a cohesive world. So I like that. I mean, that's a, I like, that's a really interesting next direction of fashion. Yeah. I mean, it's like just your IRL mood boarding Yeah, because you have access to objects with the ease now that you right. would have access to like this hat. I can imagine all mesh hat and type in, I can imagine an object, type it in on AliExpress and it exists. It exists. Yeah. Right? It's, or else it's like one click away to get it manufactured. Sure. That's a also, little more friction, but I'm yeah. sure, yeah. I, I think that's right. But also, I think one of you said this like a while back. You can like mood board to your heart's content, but ideally we would move out of a space of like recycling the same images mm-hmm. or like the algorithm leading us down different channels. And like, it's kind of cool how quickly we can move through those and how many of them we can have at the same time. But like, there has to be some way out. And like, the problem is that people aren't thinking structurally and that they're not interested in like programming. I mean, several of your guests recently have said this, but like, you have to learn how to code. Yeah. Like, we have to all yeah. learn how to code. Yeah. And like, that's also the only way new modes of like aesthetic production are going to happen. And I think that is happening to an extent. Like, I think Nymph alumni is an example, right? Or podcasts in general. Relatedly, I wonder if this is also like a generationally abound desire. So I want to ask you as well, in my head, the crisis to solve is great that there's podcasting, but we're really lacking any kind of comments and not just an aggregator, but like literally a space where we can hear each other. And it's super inefficient. I've said before, like podcasters subscribing to podcasts becomes just ridiculous thing where we're all giving each other $5 a month. And at the end of the day, Patreon, you know, takes a surplus. And obviously Web2 social media, the physics of it, the base language of it is such that it's corrosive and it doesn't really lend itself to productive discourse. There's communication that happens in those spaces, but it's something else. And so as someone who's 20 years younger than me, probably, do you share a desire for there being some kind of common space where we can see each other more clearly? Or is that just the wrong model? Like, should I just be more comfortable with this total decentralization and knowing there's a 10% chance of scamming, but that 90% chance of trust is great? And like, what are your desires? And what, what would you hope to see in the next 10, 15 years emerge? Yeah. um, No, I think I I totally, I feel similarly. I think about this maybe less with discourse, although, yeah, it would also be great to have a public forum for that. But even just like reading and books, like, I mean, that's my primary area of expertise or industry or whatever. And we have the legacy of this one user object, like one book, one user. Everyone can buy their own Sally Rooney books, I guess, and they're reading it the same way. But like, it's still this individualized experience. No one has made use of the way that like now the way that reading happens is like communal and is mm-hmm. like communally generated. Writing is happens like as a communal practice through memes or whatever. And then reading is also done in real time. There's no good digital book projects, really. There's like these super old 90s like hyperlink novels. But like, yeah, it would be amazing if you could make a site, like I have this like nostalgia for like children's virtual world games and spatialized skeuomorphic design. Um, It doesn't have to be that. But what I would feel excited about is not just a Patreon or whatever in which the creators are, there's more like financial justice, but also where it's like a real aesthetic. The infrastructure is aestheticized and it's a beautifully architected space. And it's a place on your desktop that you want to go and spend time there. Yes. Like I think the Instagram interface, I actually think like the grid, the squares, that's why it took off. Mm -hmm. It looks really fucking good. And like all your images make sense that way. Everyone can use it and you want to dwell there. Now less and less, now it's a fucking nightmare. But like that's part of, I think what we need online is to like in the whatever the Roman, the forum was like, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like you, you want it to be a beautiful space. And like, that was like public art that people invested a lot of money into. And if we're going to have a commons for discourse, I don't want it to just be like, oh, you download a PDF of my book online. It should be 
a place that people can also show video art or whatever. I think like Montez Press Radio is actually a good example of like yeah. the beautiful interface, right? Like it's something that you could have open on your desktop. Yeah, it's just a window. People could do so much more with thinking about different websites as ambient visualizer spaces that you could have open all the time and you just click back into and out of seeing what's going on there. Right. Like yeah, there's a, that's there's my a, answer, I, I love that though. There's like, there is this like dream, collective dream probably, of some kind of digital space that you walk into on your desktop. I mean, I enjoy the digital version of your book because it is this really fun space to be. It's not like this PDF, which just feels like you're in like a mine shaft with a tiny flashlight. And it just feels so cramped. All these communication systems, the switching mm-hmm. between like a thousand different messaging apps constantly, you know, your friends on Telegram or Signal or WhatsApp or whatever, it just feels feels like we're stuck in all these like tiny tunnels and there has to be some kind of better system of linking these communication forms. In a certain sense though, like a lot of people can write basic HTML, like you can just make your website and like you can not just put your own stuff on your website, like you can link to other people's work. Like if that was just an actual practice that we all did in the same way, like we follow each other on Instagram, that would be another way of mapping space. Totally. That's not as cool and cute as what we just described, but like that's a starting point. No, true. It's just like the expanded blog role. But like imagine if everyone had their own site and some people would just have a knack for it and they would become landowners in the digital space and they could even sell advertising in that space because they'd have enough traffic just because they were good at representing some kind of digital local. Yeah. I mean, I guess Urbit on some level is trying to do this with the idea of planets and stars, but yeah, who knows? Maybe in the future that will be a site for that kind of expansion. We should wrap up because we've been recording for a second, but do you have any like particular closing question that you want to ask? Maybe just as a tease of your bigger idea, you could maybe summarize your thesis about the relation between language and code. And I mean, I keep thinking as you're talking about code being like some very core analogy for how you might think of language and signs operating online in general. And maybe there's a skepticism towards the way a lot of language is deployed, say by like mainstream media or in cultural analysis based on this metaphor. I mean, I think my thesis was very much like a philosophy thesis. Like I Mm -hmm. studied computer science and I studied new media performance stuff, but really I was studying like 20th century French language theory, but like it came out of a very similar feeling towards the new media studies writing that I was reading, which was like either completely didn't understand coding, like none of these people, especially like the stuff that I was reading, they did not have any programming experience, it was clear, were extremely hostile to programming. Like in Derrida, for example, in almost every philosopher, the program or like the code is like the law of the father, the executable action and like the word is law. And that is how programming, if you think of code, you know, JavaScript or whatever as a language, then yes, it is a sign and then it has an effect and there's no room for interpretation or humanity, right, in between those two things. But it's made by people, right? Right. And like coding is an amazing creative practice. There's so many different styles, right, or paradigms of coding. Like I was never interested in becoming very good at coding, which is extremely visible on my website and like that e-reader. But like I was so fascinated by programming language design, the sort of like aesthetic effects that are generated during coding or what it feels like to program. If you think of it as a writing exercise, people talk about it being addictive and it and it, it is, is addictive because you're you're literally right like in dialogue with the machine and it's talking back to you and you're figuring it out together. And I thought, you know, that's the way that like these philosophers, whatever, Derrida writes about writing that way or like the activity of philosophy, right? Of course, it's about encountering the other through the technical medium of writing. Maybe this is what like my basic sort of style fashion brain is active here. But in both disciplines, philosophy and computer science, I was always most interested in like the forms and like the shapes that one uses as metaphors, like whether in 
Like Deleuze like has so many great ones that have become memes like the rhizome, these like figures of thought. And the same with programming, like you create a metaphor of like an object or you have stacks and lists, etc. Like the book Island Time I wrote right afterwards, I was really thinking about narrative, like in a typical bourgeois novel, it's like a linear narrative. That's like a specific type of shape. But what would it look like to write a book where there's no plot that moves towards something, there's no resolution, it just hits some kind of internal limit case and then repeats. So that's, yeah, I guess that's my spiel. I think it's a really important observation, this idea that language isn't just the content. We use language to build the structures that then shape the content or shape our experience of consuming the content. And we have to be totally aware of that. The first step of that being like diagramming. I mean, I didn't read your whole thesis, but from your intro and from your conclusion, (laughs) I gathered that this was an important element of it. And I thought that's so important to keep in mind every single time we're consuming any kind of media. It's not just the content. It's also the language that gave rise to the format that you're interacting with. And the more awareness we have of language on that level, the more agency we'll have in relation to the content that we're reading. And we should learn to build those structures or at least spatialize them, at least diagram them. If you can't code, if you, I mean, also GPT-3 can help you now, but you can at least start spatializing these things. That's a step. And I appreciate that you drew that connection. So everybody go read Olivia's book. Um, (laughs) Olivia, tell us how people can access it. There's a few ways. Oh yeah. So I have my personal website. If you click there on this like icon of an eye (laughs) that says e-reader experiment, you can read this digital version of the book that we're talking about. The book does exist in physical form and it was actually meant as like a written, no image, text-based object. That's from Expat Press. Yeah. Well, Olivia, thank you for helping us aging Xennials to calibrate us to the new media environment. Is there anything you want to shout out? Um, This is like completely unrelated to anything, yeah. but like if you're like, I've been thinking a lot about early experimental, like digitally mediated writing. People should read Tan Lin. He's really good. Tan Lin, super. Well, <laughs> Olivia, thank you. Super having you on. Thank you very much for this mind expanding ways of thinking about media style and fashion in 2023. Thank you so much. No, wait, actually, I have a good shout out. This thought just occurred to me. If you have money and you want to make a publishing platform for digital fiction or writing, you should DM me. We can do that. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Now I'm thinking like that entire like beautiful thought experiment we just did with the ambient visualizer, like that's totally a reality and you need to get your community to actually make that. That's right. That's right. So contact Olivia and she'll be happy to spearhead that. She is the person for you. (laughs) She'll she'll vouch for that. Cool. Okay, cool. All right. (laughs) Thanks, Olivia. Super talking to you. Okay, ciao. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the New Models Podcast and thank you, Olivia, for joining us. You can buy hard copies of Olivia's book, Island Time, from expatpress.com and see all of her work at oliviaks.page. As always, boost us in the algos with stars and likes and follows and paid bot armies, we won't complain. We're off to Dubai this week at the invitation of Schumann Bassar to give a lecture at Art Dubai's Global Art Forum. And we'll definitely share something with you from the trip upon our return. See you next episode. This has been a New Models production. Mixing by Lil Internet. For more, visit patreon.com slash newmodels or newmodels.substack.com.